What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and more. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor. Fastest payouts. They help out with automatic splits, cover song clearance, and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases. I dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians, bands, studio artists, DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home. And they also offer label services as well. They're distributing over a third of the world's digital music at this point. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper. Check out the link in the episode notes. I will also put it in my Instagram bio in the link tree. Click that link and it will give you 30% off your first year of service. Super stoked to have DistroKid sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe in Portland, Oregon. This spot offers free live music every Thursday night throughout the summer from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. and Sunday brunch tunes from noon to 2 p.m. with DJs spinning vinyl. Lots of dance parties both day and night are on the summer calendar as well, featuring events from Global Based and other promoters. They are located in inner southeast Portland, and aside from offering free music every week on their patio, they've got a killer brunch menu on Saturdays and Sundays. The Migas and the breakfast sandwich are lights out, and the lunch and dinner menu doesn't slack either. Come through and check out some tunes over there at Produce Row Cafe, as well as their new summer seasonal cocktail menu. This is a great spot to grab some food and some drinks and enjoy some tunes with friends or family. Appreciate Produce Row being a supporter of the podcast and the local Portland music community. Now let's start the show. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning into the program. Once again, if this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every week. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And that will help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which is super helpful in uh, contributing to the growth and sustainability of this thing, helping strangers find the podcast and whatnot. Appreciate the folks that have already taken the time to leave those reviews. If you're not listening on Apple, just hit like, follow, subscribe wherever you are listening from. 
The podcast is available on Spotify now, and I've been dropping monthly playlists on Spotify as well. Every first of the month, you can find those on Spotify and Apple. The links will be in the episode notes. I appreciate everybody's patience these uh, last five or six weeks when I took off on tour. Some of the release dates got a little bit scattered, and a lot of stuff came out on uh, not Fridays, which it traditionally has. In the last uh, few weeks, they've they've come out on Monday and Tuesday. So uh, I've been using that time to experiment a little bit too, and just kind of see if the show is being received differently, or if it's getting a little bit more visibility. Kind of not getting lost in the uh, weekend hype or all of the new music that drops on Friday. So I had been thinking about messing with some different release dates anyhow. And incidentally, through, uh, you know, some software issues on the road and whatnot, this is uh, how things have shaken out. And it gave me the opportunity to do it. And I'm going to roll with releasing new episodes on Tuesday until further notice, which Tuesday used to be the day the new music came out. It used to be this thing to look forward to early in the week, and then it got moved to to Fridays in July of 2015. So we're going with Tuesdays now. We're going to see how that shakes out. Hopefully that doesn't, uh, you know, fuck up anybody's weekly routines or anything i can't imagine anyone is uh basing their schedules around the the release date of this podcast but i hope that uh this can provide some clarity on what's been happening and uh i hope to bring you the consistency of uh, a release date that you have uh become accustomed to over these last five or six years so i'm excited to uh Hit you with episode 313. Ken Yates is on the show this week all the way from Ontario, Canada. And this was the first time doing a Zoom cast in a long time. I've been spoiled with being able to uh, get in the same room as people as of late. And I will not lie, I was a little nervous going into it because it had been so long since I had done a Zoom podcast, which is funny because for a majority of the pandemic and the lockdowns, I was doing all of my episodes over Zoom and that became the format I was most comfortable with. And then I got to start doing them in person a little bit. And that was kind of weird at first, but uh, being on the road for the last six weeks or so, I was able to do some in person, and I was able to bank a bunch of episodes before I left at the at the Tree Fort Music Festival, so this is the, the first one that I've recorded since I got back to Portland a week or two ago, and I got to link up with Ken Yates and just love talking with this dude he's a great songwriter and i'd been hearing his name around the singer songwriter scene the last year or so when i heard the first single off his new record cerulean i was uh, grabbed by the songwriting and was excited for the rest of the record and uh there's some great features on the record including past guests of the podcast liz longley katie pruitt's on the record just some other amazing singer songwriters all over this thing and the whole record just carries this consistent vibe that is super enjoyable front to back 
So definitely uh, grab yourself a vinyl copy. If you dig what you hear, I'll make sure that uh, the links for Ken's merch and upcoming tour dates are included in the episode notes. He was such a nice dude, and if you're fortunate enough to have Ken coming through a city near you, I would encourage you to to go check out some of these dates that he's got coming up. He's uh, playing some Canada shows this week, in fact, on Wednesday, June 22nd, he will be at the Cameron House in Toronto, Ontario. June 25th, he's uh, going to be in Hamilton, Ontario at Mills Hardware with former guest of the podcast, Abigail LaPelle. I just uh, got to chat with Abigail when we were in Boise in March. She has this incredible new record and is also such a great player, and I got to see her play this solo acoustic set out there at tree fort so that's a, a killing show if you are in the hamilton ontario area june 25th mills hardware with abigail lapel and then ken is in london ontario for the home county folk festival and that is in mid-july and come september ken yates will be stateside mostly playing midwest and east coast shows so uh Tap into Ken's website if you want to keep up with his tour dates and snag some of that merch. I am very excited to get my Cerulean vinyl and just uh, really enjoyed this chat that I got to have with Ken. If you are in the Portland, Oregon area and you want to see some free live music, you can come through Produce Row every Thursday night, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., yeah, jazz trios, folk duos, singer-songwriters, and every Sunday, noon to 2, you can catch DJ spinning vinyl over there. Don't miss the Jeff Chilton trio down there every first Thursday. And you can catch me DJing this Saturday, June 25th at Mayfly in North Portland. I will be there 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Excited for that gig, getting to uh, DJ in a, a space that I haven't played at yet so that's uh gonna be rad this weekend follow me on instagram and twitter handles will be in the episode notes and that's all of the the ramblings i have for you this week i hope everybody is doing well out there and i hope you enjoy episode 313 of the day cable presents podcast ken yates is on the show and we're going to kick it off with a track from that cerulean record this is one of my favorites it's called the future is dead let's do the damn thing good man let's do it right on well i'm excited to uh talk with you ken i've uh 
I've had Cerulean heavy in my rotation since it came out and just feels like oh, thanks, you uh, feels like maybe you tapped into something a little different with this record opposed to the the previous releases so I'm excited to dive into that but wanted to uh, get to know you a little bit beforehand and kind of just talk to you about your your music background and where you grew up and what your your entry point into music was yeah man well i grew up in uh i grew up in a town called london ontario which is a couple hours west of toronto and it's uh it's got all the same stuff as london england we've got like the thames river we've got hyde park we've got all the same street names and stuff just everything's it's just a lot shittier (laughs) (laughs) it's uh yeah it's it's an all right city but it's yeah one of the bigger cities in ontario and um yeah, so grew up there and just kind of, you know, started playing guitar and in bands in high school and um I knew that I knew that I wanted to do music for a living, but I didn't really know like how to define that. I I was not a songwriter uh until I was about 20. Um so I actually I went to uh I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, which I don't which I don't really like to advertise cuz I feel like <laughs> there's a bit of a stigma around around being a Berkeley kid, but um for me it was kind of kind of the perfect place for me just to like have a have a like four years of a safe space to just figure out what I wanted to do because I really had no idea of what I wanted to do so that's where you know started meeting some some other musicians and some other songwriters and um was around my third year I started writing songs and and kind of moving in that direction and realized that that was that was what I wanted to do. And then, uh, took a, like took a few songwriting courses after having never written a song, uh, ever. And just thought that like, you know, they'd be giving us tips on, on like lyric writing or whatever, or we'd be listening to famous songs, but they were like, no, first week bring in a song and we're going to like critique it. So that just sort of lit a fire under my ass to, to start writing. And, um, you know, wrote a lot of bad songs in my first year doing that, but eventually the, the songs started getting a little, little better. And, um, it was just nice to have that community to, to, you know, just evolve as a songwriter. And, and, and I met a lot of my friends who I, who I still play with now. And, um, and yeah, moved, moved to New York shortly after graduating Berkeley, spent a couple, a uh, couple of years there, um, just, completely failing and uh, <laughs> <laughs> moved back to Canada shortly after back to Toronto and then just just been um been touring and putting out records for the last I guess it's over 10 years now we're, we're coming up on 12 years so yeah so when you were uh growing up in London like were there any instruments in the house was there anybody musical in the family or is that something you kind of just like took to on your own yeah, I mean, I kind of took to it on my own. My parents were a little bit musical and, and you know, they were always like my mom played a little bit of piano and and they put me into piano lessons at a young age. And and then, you know, like most kids, I decided didn't didn't want to do piano and, and wanted to switch to guitar. So I, I think I asked my parents to switch switch to guitar lessons. And but yeah, my dad, you know, was always playing um you know, a lot of, a lot of like Neil Young around the house and, and a lot of those like seventies singer songwriters. So I, I was definitely kind of brought up just with, with that kind of music in the house. And, but yeah, I basically asked them to, to, uh, to basically told them that I wanted to play guitar and, um, then just sort of was obsessed with it, uh, while I, you know, when I was a teenager. So, yeah. Is that what you did with a lot of your free time then was working on learning covers and writing tunes of your own? 
Kind of, yeah. I had a weird, weird high school experience because I was very much a jock, <laughs> and not not really by choice. Yeah. I, I would just, it was sort of like this sidetrack. Like I had, you know, I had loved the guitar and I loved playing guitar in the basement, and then I just happened to be good at at running. So I got really into like track and field, and and you know played a few other sports in high school, and and you know my like my friend base was very much like jocks and not musical at all like I didn't play in bands or anything so guitar was just sort of this thing that I would come home to and just sit in the basement and 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 just play along to to stuff I liked and um it wasn't until like uh getting close to graduating high school and thinking about what I wanted to do where I sort of like my brain kind of was done with with the sports and uh, I remember there was like a day where I was like running I was I started running track field outside of high school like uh, with a competitive uh club and um I just remember like there was just one day where I was just like I'm done with this man like I'm not I'm not running anymore I want to go home and play guitar like what are we doing here I'm not going to the Olympics uh yeah I remember the day I was just like all right that's it that's it for sports (laughs) But yeah, I had like I met a couple dudes who, you know, I played, you know, I played in in their basement for a while, and I maybe did like four or five shows in hi- in high school just at like local venues. But I really, it wasn't really like a thing I was doing much. I wasn't playing out much. I wasn't playing in bands much. I was just sort of in the basement uh, playing. Yeah, more uh, learning other people's songs or did you kind of develop an interest in writing your own songs pretty early on even when you didn't know that you kind of wanted to do this career-wise no i i had never written a song till i was about 20 years old so yeah my third year at berkeley so um i was mostly just just learning other songs and playing along and i I wasn't even singing back then i was just just playing guitar so i i never fancied myself a singer either yeah yeah, my familiarity with with London. I'm a big hockey fan, so the London okay, Knights yeah. is something I know about. Is like a pretty pretty heavy part of that culture. That's the only reason anybody <laughs> from America knows where London, Ontario is. It's <laughs> the only people who know about hockey, and a lot of people like you know a lot of people from the Michigan, Ohio area. Like if they played, like I think it's Junior A or whatever hockey. Like they always went up through Ontario and played in all those Ontario towns. But yeah, the London Knights, they're 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 a big thing there if you're if you're into hockey for sure. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the London Knights went to my high school. They're all all in my class, and a lot of them went on to be like huge NHL stars. Yeah, I had Patrick Kane in my English class. Oh no way! <laughs> That's wild, <Yeah. laughs> dude. So, like, how did you make that leap from kind of like you know you're just messing around playing guitar in the basement to getting into I don't know a pretty prestigious music school in Berkeley? Honestly, man, just like complete ignorance to like my skill level, just because like I said, I didn't really play with any other musicians. So I had no idea like where I fell in terms of like skill or uh, like potential. I just knew that I wanted to play music and um, my parents were really supportive of that. And they said like, you know what? Because I started talking about Berkeley, and I really knew nothing about it. I just, I just knew some some musicians that I listened <laughs> yeah. to had gone there. Um, so they said, you know what? I think it'll be a good experience just to take you down and and audition and see a new city and go down to the states and just see if you like it. So, um, you know, the audition process is is kind of a, an intense process. So I think they thought that that would be a character building yeah. for me. 
And uh, so really, I went down there like completely ignorant. And that honestly, that probably worked out well for me because otherwise I would have been um, terrified. And then I got in. So <laughs> I, I don't know how I got in, but I got in. Do you remember that audition being like pretty intimidating for yourself or were you uh, kind of cool, calm, collected under those sort of uh, circumstances? I mean, look back on it, I can't believe how calm I was doing it because I, I think I just had no idea what I was in for. And once I got in the room, it was like, oh, okay, this is this is pretty intense. But up until then, I just had like that youthful confidence, I guess. I, and I never even thought that I might not get in, which is crazy because so many people don't don't get in. And right. Yeah. So honestly, it's just, I feel lucky that that I had that confidence and clearly picked the right song. I remember going in there with, um, because at the time I was playing like kind of a lot of classic rock as well. And so I remember, you know, I remember thinking like, I need to show off my, like my, my various stylistic skills, which was like playing, you know, a Les Paul, uh, like classic rock style and then doing a little bit of like finger style acoustic stuff. And in, in hindsight, it's definitely the, the finger style acoustic stuff that saved me. Because if I had just gone in there and, and just played like a classic rock medley, I don't think I would have got in. But I did. I brought in like both electric and acoustic and did one of each. Yeah. And so thankfully, yeah, I played this little instrumental kind of finger style um, guitar, guitar tune by this guy, Don Ross, who's the instrumental guitar player. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what got me in, not the... Uh, not the Led Zeppelin medley. <laughs> and was that, were those the years where you really start developing your own taste for music and getting exposed to a lot of stuff that you weren't aware of prior? Yeah, I think, you know, coming from, coming from London, not having a lot of musician friends, those first two years at Berkeley, that's when I basically got introduced to like the music that I listen to now. Um, you know, like I, I, I never even dug into like Beatles records as a teenager. So that's where I really just discovered music. I think, you know, I, I met all these people that were introducing me to new stuff. And for the first few years, I kind of, I, I still was a little bit aimless. Like I just kind of bounced around and your first few years at Berkeley, you're, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot of focus on your principal instrument. Not so much, you know, by the third year you, you start, um, choosing which direction you want to go but the first two years is very much just like musical theory based on your principal instrument so yeah so I was just playing a lot of guitar and and hearing a lot of new music that I'd never really been introduced to and um but it wasn't until my third year when I when everyone starts choosing a direction where I kind of realize like oh I still don't have a direction and that's when I decided to to take a couple of songwriting courses and, and just try that out. And that's when I really like met the people that I, you know, still work with today. And um, that's where I, I feel like I met, I met my people, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the sad songwriter crowd. <laughs> I was like, these, these are, these are my people. <laughs> what do you think spoke to you about that, that lane and kind of uh, communicating your, your feelings in that, realm of like through song and whatnot i think i think it was just that i had never met anybody like that before you know like i said i was kind of a jock in high school and i never really felt like those 
those kids were were my people it wasn't really like the, a crowd i related to and then i feel like my first few years at berkeley i just gravitated towards people like that because they were people i was comfortable with so i feel like i was still hanging out with like the jocks at berkeley weirdly and so i think i finally found these people who were just very like very passionate and very just very kind of in touch with who they are as a person and and very like confident in their own way just and just a sense of community that i had never really 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 belonged in and for them to just kind of accept me as a as a fellow songwriter and have this like really safe space to just um work and write and we took we all took it very seriously which i think um you know is probably laughable if you look look back on it you know thinking we were writing like hits (laughs) but um but I think that was just the perfect community to try to try to develop as a songwriter and an artist, just having that that safe space. Yeah. Were you pretty comfortable with uh, sharing your ideas or did it take you a little bit of time to develop confidence in that? And just, I guess, being comfortable in that sort of vulnerability? Yeah, it was terrifying at first. I was completely terrified. Um, like I said, I thought these songwriting courses would just be you know, picking apart other people's songs. I didn't think we'd be bringing in our own songs. And so I was completely terrified. But, you know, it, again, I had really no, um, no like barometer of where my skill was compared to other people. So it took me kind of sharing it with other people to realize like, uh, oh, I'm not bad at this. And, and people, you know, critiquing your songs instead of it being a disaster like I thought it would be it was people saying like hey man this is this is pretty good and so my confidence kind of started developing over time with that just knowing like oh okay I might I might be on to something here I might actually be okay at this yeah (laughs) and um and honestly then you know going out into the real world after that like you can play your songs uh in front of anybody once you've done that right so uh that definitely set me up um, to be like a, a full-time performer just because if you can openly have a bunch of a uh, bunch of 20 year olds critique your song in a classroom then you can really play it anywhere yeah that's way scarier than uh, sharing in front of a bunch of strangers in a coffee shop or in a bar exactly yeah exactly yeah it was it was terrifying but yeah I, I slowly over the, over the course of a couple of years started getting more comfortable with it yeah so I would imagine also, that that was a big opportunity to uh learn how important collaboration was having so many fellow musicians and songwriters around you as well absolutely i mean i think if if somebody asked me now like you know about the songwriting process and and um what's like my first piece of advice is it's to find somebody who you trust who you can send your song to before anybody else hears it and before you even decide whether it's good uh, to have that person to basically be your, like your scale on uh, whether it's a song that you should continue working on or, you know, maybe it's not your best because I feel like as songwriters, it's just so hard to know if you're onto something good or not. Right. You're everyone's so self-critical. And so for me, yeah, I I met uh, my friend, Brian Dunn, who's a, um, amazing songwriter in his own right. I met him at Berkeley and he's the first person I send a song to, even if it's in its earliest stages and I think it's total crap, um, yeah. I'll send it to him. And it's so funny. Our email chain is just like, 
the subject line is just like, this could be shit or this is awful. <laughs> Am I crazy? Am I insane? It's just like so self-deprecating. But it's, you know, uh, you just need somebody to to take you out of your own head and just say like, no, man, this like this is really good. You might want to lose this section, but this this section's great. Uh, this line is great. And uh, that to me is just, it, that's comp- like so invaluable. And I don't know what I would do without it, to be honest. I feel like... I, w- I would have released completely different songs. Yeah. <laughs> Were you pretty open to that sort of criticism from the get-go because of that environment that you were learning in at Berkeley? Like, was it, did it make it easy to kind of understand other people's points of views on, on your tunes and where they were coming from and that they weren't trying to uh, chop you down? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I was it was I was so new to it that I was really open to the criticism because I expected the criticism, I think. Um and then when the criticism turned out to be positive, that just, you know, gave me more confidence and I think allowed me to receive any negative criticism from that. Now, I will say like you can bring in a song that on paper is good, you know, like whatever, you've got the right structure, you've got the right rhyme scheme and then for some reason, it's just not good. Like there is that something. Like it, it's hard to explain. And and you know, there's things in my, in my songs now that I I just I now know they're good, and I can't really explain why. I just I just know like this line like it might not make sense, but I, it just feels right. So there's little things like that that I think you you know you know, like if someone's giving you criticism, I th- I think you know as the songwriter whether to take that criticism seriously or not. But I think that was the good thing about actually taking uh, songwriting courses was just um, developing the tools to learn how to write. And then later on, like, I know when not to use the tools. I know when to break the rules, right? So that was, um, that's, a, that's a huge part of, of where I'm at now. It's just, if, if I'm stuck on something, I, I know some tricks to, to try to get myself unstuck or... Um, if I, you know, if I think I've got a song that's 75% of the way there, uh, I know, I just, like, I know how to take it over the finish line now. And I, and I, I attribute that to actually uh, taking some courses for songwriting. Yeah. Would you say that, like, an equal part of that learning process was just getting to listen to other people's songs at that time and just kind of get to see their process since everything was kind of being broken down in front of you absolutely yeah and i think a lot of it is inspiration too right like if somebody brings in a good song and they blow you away yeah you immediately want to run home and start writing right and that's still where most of my inspiration comes from it comes from a friend sending me a song and being like holy shit man that song's so good i I wish i wrote that and nothing nothing makes me write faster than than you know hearing somebody else's good song (laughs) yeah man there's like nothing like going to a show and you immediately just want to go home or you have that urge even during the show like oh i can't wait to get home and write some music absolutely yeah that's the best best uh source of inspiration you know it's it's hard to come up with inspiration on your own so and you know what sometimes you just try to copy that exact song and most of the time it comes out completely different because, you know, you're your own artist and uh, you have your own style, right? So a lot of times I'm just like, I'm going to try to write that song. And, you know, I always end up with something completely different, but it's just the 
the inspiration that you get from it that kind of kickstarts the process. Think I'll try sleeping on the other side. I dreamt of someone else's life. Then I woke up. Here's the thing. Been looking back since 17. Let's wonder what tomorrow brings. It's keeping me talking to other people that have gone to Berkeley I always feel like I get um, you know some mixed reviews about people's experiences just because I know that it can be like incredibly hard and can kind of uh, I don't know put you in your place I, I suppose if you feel like you were like this amazing musician going in and then you're surrounded by all these other people that are also at your level or maybe even at a at a higher level um, so did you have any points while you were there where it was like really discouraging or was it always just something that made you want to work harder and just you definitely knew that leaving there, this is what you wanted your path to be and just writing music and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, the first two years definitely were discouraging just because, you know, I I was as just a guitar player, I was nowhere near the levels of people who were actual like wanted to be full-time like session players or you know performers but yeah once i once i found the songwriting crew that that just they just inspired so much confidence in me and it was so new and it was so fresh to me that it, there was no like i don't think that i had any like jealousy or anything on my part or or never got discouraged by other people who were seemingly doing better than me i think just because it was so new to me and it was so exciting to like be going down this rabbit hole and it was exciting to me that people liked the songs I was writing and um those were some of the I would say least discouraging times of my music career thus far was those <laughs> couple of years now it started getting discouraging after that once I actually started taking it out on the road right but those yeah I mean I was just so green back then and I can see why other artists might have issues with Berkeley because some people were like fully formed artists when they were there. I remember I went to, uh, I was in the same year as, um, as Adrian Lanker from Big Thief. And she was just already like this fully formed, amazing songwriter. She already had the, that Big Thief vibe that she has now and was already writing songs that I, that I could potentially hear on like a recent Big Thief record. So I think everybody knew there like, oh, this person, she maybe doesn't need to be here yeah. all four years. <laughs> like she could probably go do her thing. Whereas I really needed that time to just figure myself out and, and, and develop. And I don't honestly don't know if I would have been a songwriter if I hadn't gone there. That's kind of the crazy thing because just that environment sort of forced me to, to pick a direction and to, to go like head on into it. Yeah. Were you, when you left there, were you, uh, was your focus just to work on your own tunes or were you collaborating with others and writing with others after that or playing in anybody else's band or was your role just usually you fronting your project and working on those tunes? Yeah. I mean, I think when I, when I first started writing, I had the idea like Berkeley sort of um, it's very focused on, kind of the Nashville style of writing. So co-writing 
and writing for other artists. So I definitely thought that that's what I would be doing. I would be writing music for other people. And I still never really fancied myself a singer. The only uh, time I would sing was just to play these songs for other people, you know, imagining somebody else might be singing them. But, you know, um, I never really got anywhere with pitching other people's songs. So I think once I once I graduated, uh, I just started singing it myself and um, just kind of developed my own my own thing. And um, yeah, ever since then, it's it's primarily just been me, you know, singing my own songs and um, not you know mostly solo. And um, and you know, I've done a little bit of co-writing here and there, and I'm still I'm still open to the co-writing thing, but. Um, it's never really, never really gone anywhere for me. And I've, I personally don't feel very good at it. Um, so yeah, it's just been, you know, since then it's just been just me playing solo, playing my own songs. Were you able to find a circle of folks in New York? Like you, you had at Berkeley or was it harder to find that in such a big city? Yeah, we had, we had a kind of a Berkeley crew that moved, moved down there from Boston. So that was nice to have. And we failed miserably. You know, we just, we booked, we were booking like five shows a week at various venues around New York. And like, obviously no one was coming to them because <laughs> um, we were playing five in a week. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we just, you know, for that first year, we really failed miserably, but we had, we had each other and it was, it was all right. And um, we all, I know, I remember we all really wanted to tour, but we didn't know what that, like how to do that. You're we like, hey, we, we, we had some other friends who were touring and we were like, how do you even do that? But eventually we we kind of started branching out from New York, uh, doing just like the East Coast, Boston and New England and um, and kind of learned how to start booking ourselves and um, how to how to like route a tour. And I didn't last very long in New York. I found it I found it a difficult place to be, especially as a, as a broke 20 year old. And like you said, I didn't find there was, other than the community that I was there with from Berkeley, I didn't find there to be much of a music community at that point. And so, yeah, I just kind of, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time was living in Toronto and I just sort of gravitated back towards there after a while. And every time I went back to Toronto, I would just leave more and more stuff there. And then <laughs> uh, before I knew it, I had, I was moved out of New York. When you had the opportunity to play a little bit on the road was that validating for you or just eye-opening to see how people were connecting to the tunes that you were playing in various places yeah i mean the the one thing that i've been grateful for is it, i had a few friends from berkeley that that would uh have me open shows for them who were doing who were a little further along than me i have this friend liz longley she's a great songwriter and um she already had her own her own audience and was touring a bunch and and she she asked me to open a couple shows and that was the first time i was playing to like real audiences and um and i knew that like i knew i was on to something you know i knew people liked what the songs i was playing them and uh you know so i knew it was working now it wasn't working every single night but i knew there were nights where i could see it working and that's the best part about about playing live is is you just you can you can see people react immediately to to what you're doing, um, so that was just really valuable for me to to know that at least like okay well people seem to like this so I guess I'm gonna keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Uh, I was really excited to uh, see Liz's name on the on the new record. I got to uh, oh nice yeah. have her on the podcast like three or four years ago. She came through Portland to play, and I got to chat with her. And that Good Things track is uh, is one of my favorites off Cerulean. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, Liz has been a huge uh, huge for me because she. I remember hearing her play a song at Berkeley before I had even written a song. She played her song, When You Got Trouble, which is still an amazing song. And I can't believe she wrote that at like 19 years old. And I heard that song and I was just like, whoa, okay. Well, this person is taking this seriously. And she was already kind of branching out and playing shows at Berkeley. And um, and she just, she had kind of developed all those skills a lot earlier than I had. And uh, and I really learned a lot from her just, just about, you know, how to book shows and how to tour efficiently and just how to, you know, be a full-time entrepreneur, which is basically what we are, right? Just out there selling, selling your, selling your yeah. brand and, and playing shows and getting out there. And, um, so she was, yeah, she was, she was huge for me just to, to figure out how that all works. Do you, uh, remember much about that good things? track coming together how that one took shape yeah that one came it was probably the quickest song uh that i wrote for the record it came together really quick it was one of the last ones basically the, this new album is sort of a it's sort of a timeline of kind of everything i was going through that year and so it's all basically in chronological order to how i wrote it um so i wrote that one pretty close to when we went in the studio and yeah, that one just it that one really just poured out of me. Sometimes you get lucky and and you write one in an hour and and that's where that one came from. And I think it that one came from a place of of uh, just appreciation for for everything I have in my life. You know, I was going through a bit of, bit of a tough time uh, during the pandemic and uh, was like feeling a little a little angry and a little bitter. And that song was just me being like, hey, you know what, dude? Like, you got it. You got it pretty fucking good, man. Like, you've got you've got a great wife, um, and you know, you got a nice house, and uh, things could be worse. And you got a dog who's barking right now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that song was just kind of, let's just you know, let's just focus on all the all the good things you got going in your life instead of you know uh, focusing on the bad stuff. Heaven sounds a lot like. The high school reunion What do I have to do now To get me out of going You always like to tell me That anything worth doing Should be done the right way Well if I didn't yeah, and as far as Liz's role in the collaboration with that one, is that one where she's actually uh, contributing to lyrics or you're bouncing lyric ideas off of her as well? Uh, no, that song was pretty much fully formed and we had most of it recorded. And then uh, I knew I wanted I knew I knew wanted Liz to sing on that song. I knew I wanted a female vocal and I knew, I knew her vocal would sound great on that. She sung on a couple of songs from my past few records and... Um, and yeah, so I just knew kind of from the get go that that she would be perfect for that song, and so yeah, I just just sent it to her, and she uh, she did it from home, um, which was the cool part about 
recording this during a pandemic was everybody kind of learned how to record themselves. Yeah. So they could just send you ideas from home. And she sent me a couple ideas and she sent me this really cool uh, doubled vocal part that we use bits and pieces of. And um, so, yeah, so that was cool that she was willing to, to do that just by sending it in remotely. Was it strange for you to collaborate in that way, you know, over Zoom and having those those types of sessions, or did it uh, seem to like make sense to you pretty quickly, or you still felt like you could uh, feel what was good about maybe these dry recordings, or just not being able to be in the same room with the people making the record? I personally thought it was really cool. I, I kind of loved it. Um, Two of the people who sang on the record, I had never even met when they sang on it. So I had never met Katie Pruitt and I had never met Stephanie Lambring. And um, we had just been kind of messaging back and forth uh, about, you know, we had a mutual appreciation for, for each other's songs. And um, I just kind of sent it to them asking if they might be interested in just singing uh, whatever comes to mind. Like I didn't really have a part in mind. And I think that was the beauty of it was they were able to just work on it from home and come up with parts that were unique to them instead of, you know, I feel like if I brought them in to the studio for a session, we might have we might have come up with something just a bit more kind of basic or, or a bit more watered down just to get it done. Whereas I think them being able to be in their in their creative space and think about it a little bit and come up with their own own way to sing it instead of just like the normal you know third of a harmony above the above the lead vocal um that was really cool like katie sent me this her part and it was just totally something i never would have come up with and um i was blown away by what what she did and um and she sent me all these different ideas too that we were able to to just pick apart and use bits and pieces of. So I, I found that really cool to be able to collaborate with basically people you've never even met and they can just send you these, these cool ideas from home. Another round Get backed up and left town Before somebody else could lay it down So I'd never do that to Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 Pub, located in the Alphabet District of Northwest Portland. They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall of over 200 bottles. It's summertime, and they've got their 45th Parloma on the menu, their play on the Paloma, as well as their staple food item, the rosemary garlic fries, which are easily my favorite thing on the starter's menu. That fry sauce, I don't know what it is, but it's banging. And in addition to the cocktails and the food, they've got one of the best patios in the city, Tons of big screens outside to enjoy the sun and all your favorite sports. And the best part is they've also got free live music. You can catch DJs there every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Residencies from local artists including Spinach, 
Vanport, Sicko Side, and WWJP, as well as DJs and beatmakers every Sunday from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Don't miss local beatmakers Love Jones and Free Tillman every second Sunday and DJ Slim Gweeny every fourth Sunday at North 45 Pub. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, definitely want to talk more about Cerulean, but before we do, I was uh it's I was curious like what your your thoughts are on uh looking back on the 23 record now that, you know, you're like a decade removed oh, yeah. from that. Um how how far That's a good question. How far removed were you from your Berkeley experience when you put out 23? Not far at all. That was that was very much um still kind of uh, Berkeley, Berkeley, Kent. And, uh, I was working with a producer who I'd met at Berkeley and, um, yeah, you know what? I like, I think some of those songs on that record are, are still good. I don't, you know, stylistically, it's not really, um, music that I would listen to anymore. You know, I think, I think I was just so, so fresh and green going into that record that I, I didn't know anything about producing records. I didn't know anything about recording records. It was all so new to me. So I was just basically listening to what other people had to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of, I don't think I personally had a lot of input on how that record sounded. And honestly, I, I wouldn't even know how, how it should sound. Um, I was just so, um, so new to it. Um, so yeah, looking back, you know, it's, it's definitely a lot folkier and, uh, I'm even just, you know, I, I'm even just developing as a singer, you know, like my voice just sounds completely different. Yeah. And, um, we, you know, back then I feel like as, as Berkeley musicians, I feel like we did come out of it like very polished and that to me, that record sounds very polished for sure. And that's the thing that I'm, that I'm constantly fighting now is, is I do sound very naturally polished and I'm always just fighting that constantly <laughs> to, to, you know, strip that away as much as possible. Because I know now that even if I put like the weirdest, craziest shit on a record, it's still going to sound pretty polished because it's me. Right. So right. there's, you know, at the end of the day, like, and I think I used to worry about that. I think I worried about like serving the song or whatever mm-hmm. and um, not adding too much, on it production wise and just keeping it relatively stripped down and, and focused on the lyrics. But now I know that like I could literally add anything and it yeah. would, you know, it would still, the song would still be there because it's still me playing and singing it. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know, going back through the catalog and listening to some of that record this morning, <clears throat> I like definitely, I don't know. There's not quite as much character there yet. But I did find yeah. that curtain call song, specifically the verses, oh, yeah. to maybe be like that indication of what your songwriting might become, or like maybe some of the the stuff you're doing rhythmically now with your your vocal delivery. It seemed like it seemed like some of that existed even early on when you're figuring it out. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting to think about. I think I think still like my songwriting has always come from writing a melody on the guitar so i think a lot of that rhythmic melodic stuff still comes from that still comes from me basically writing it on the guitar first and that song specifically like the the full melody is in the guitar part for that song curtain call um and i still definitely do a lot of that so yeah i think there's hints in there and and like i said there's still i listen to those songs and i'm like you know what like 
there's there's some good songs in there. I just don't necessarily love the way it sounds. And um, yeah, you know, I, I I definitely cringe a little when I when I hear that yeah. record. And there's part of me that just wants to get rid of it. Uh, just get get rid of it. it get get rid of it of its existence. Sorry, I can't talk right now. I don't know what's <laughs> what's going on. But um, I I brought up the old stuff, and you got you got nervous, Ken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, man. It's just like there's got to be stepping stones to to get where you're at and uh I don't know. It seems like to me like listening to the the full catalog of stuff that uh it just seems like you keep developing more patience for your songwriting and like what the songs are trying to communicate. And uh I could under- yeah. I could understand yeah. why you would maybe not want 23 to be the representation of like where it's at now because it is very different you know there there's not like it doesn't have the vibe of cerulean which i feel like just from the opening track i was like very intrigued 10 seconds in i was like oh i'm gonna listen to this whole thing probably oh cool that's that's good to hear yeah i think you know I, I think I've always been a bit of a bit of a slow burn and I'm a little late to the party and I'm I'm just starting to realize that now. Like like I said, I didn't even start writing songs until my third year. So to think that, you know, twenty three would have you know, I, I'd almost be embarrassed if that record had like been a record that like, you know, was successful because it's, I don't think that I don't think I was a finished product by that. I mean, and may, maybe I never am a finished product, but I don't think I was even close to like what I, what I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, some artists, like I said, they, they are kind of this already, um, developed product by the time they're in their early twenties. And, and, you know, sometimes that like, sometimes that's discouraging as a 33 year old now, you know, listening to, uh, you know, Phoebe Bridgers or something, who's like 23. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, how does she come up with these songs? But yeah. that's just, you know, that it is what it is, right? Some people, some people find it earlier and, uh, and some people it takes a little longer. And, and, um, so Cerulean in a way feels like my, my, the first record I've ever wanted to make. Like Cerulean feels like the music that I would listen to, I think. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, like, for I sure, think, man the the first three were very much folk records and i think they're folky be, not because i was really into folk music but because i was just trying to figure out what i wanted to be as an artist and the easiest way to do that was to just tour around as a solo acoustic guitar right. player and so naturally when you're just playing solo acoustic to audiences every night i think you just kind of develop a a folky thing and uh and that bleeds into the records whereas this record was the first time i had never played any of these songs live before i recorded them and they were all written at home during the pandemic and i think i just put a lot more thought into how i wanted them to sound not specifically with me playing them solo to an audience but how i wanted them to sound on the record yeah i think that's kind of like my feelings listening to the records like I think there's some some cool tunes on the on the previous ones, but like Cerulean is like the record I want to listen to all the time. You know, it's been like I said, it's been heavy in the rotation since it came out, and I just think that there's like a lot of uh, there's just 
a lot of consistency, I think, in a good way as far as like what you were able to capture. But the Thanks, I don't man. know. Did did you feel like when you were making quiet talkers that you were starting to really kind of like find your voice at least? I think I was halfway there. I think half the songs on Quiet Talkers, I think, could be on Cerulean. And then the other half is sort of one foot back in sort of this Berkeley songwriting mode, which which is, I think, I, I think, I mean, I think the reality is I just had more personal stuff to write about with Cerulean. And so I think the songs just kind of came out a lot more naturally than... You know, some songs on Quiet Talkers, I find I'm still just trying to be like a bit too tricky with like my turn of phrase. And I'm I'm trying to focus too much on the actual like nitty gritty songwriting of it all yeah. and not just, you know, how I'm feeling. But yeah, half, you know, half of Quiet Talkers I still I still like. And then the other half is is more, you know, I feel like the old version of of what I used to write. And but I think a lot of that just comes from, again, like having personal experiences and uh and just growing as a human being and like Huntsville the record before that is very much songs focused on like on being on the road and because that's all I was doing I was just in my car all the time playing shows and that's why it's got that very like folky troubadour kind of yeah, <laughs> kind of vibe sure. because that's what I was doing and uh I think Cerulean is just uh I was just starting to look a little bit more inward and in, and in, in evolving as a as a human being. Yeah, man, I think you can or at least I can kind of like feel that through the music and I think that like speaking to what you were saying as far as maybe with quiet talkers you're still like trying to do some flashy stuff here and there and I think like one of the things I kind of took away from listening to Cerulean is maybe like I don't know. Maybe it's just the way that it was produced. And like you were saying, you weren't like playing these songs live at all. So maybe they have a different feel because of that. But it just seems like, uh, I don't know. There's, uh, there's with the Cerulean, it doesn't seem like there's these moments where you're like necessarily reaching to blow the ceiling off with certain things. And yeah. And some of that yeah. like makes all of the, I don't know. It somehow like makes all the words and the melodies more impactful because it, it's like it's not screaming or demanding the attention. I'm just kind of like compelled to listen to whatever it is that you're like working through. It feels like through the songs. Yeah, I think that I that I mean that's that's really interesting to hear you say because I've never really I've never really thought about it like that. But um, I think that was the one good thing about the pandemic was like I was writing these songs without really thinking about who would listen to them. I was, you know, I think the hard thing about being an like emerging songwriter, I've been emerging for 10, for 10 years, but um, <laughs> is that every song you write, you feel like has to be the one, has yeah. to be the one that like gets you out there. And I think a lot of songs on Quiet Talkers, I remember thinking like, Oh, maybe, you know, maybe this song could be a hit. And like, I don't even know what I, you know, like, I can't, can't even believe I was thinking about that. But like, I think I, w I was writing to this, like, with this mass audience in mind, not even knowing who that audience was. And I just think that's the wrong, kind of wrong headspace to be in when you are writing. Like, you shouldn't be trying to write a song for like the mass audience. Uh, you should be writing a song that you would want to listen to um, and that you personally connect with. And so I think 
there are a few of my favorites from Quiet Talkers that are in that vein where I wrote them just just kind of for me and they and they made it on the record and now they're my favorites. There's a song called When We Came Home on there that I that I still very much am attached to. Um and a song called Great County Blues on that record, which I think kind of fit the the cerulean uh fit in that cerulean world. But yeah, on, honestly man, I think it was just shutting my brain off a little bit and just not really being connected to to the uh, to the rest of the world and just kind of writing things that that felt honest and that that I felt like I would want to listen to as a as a listener. Yeah, you mentioned uh Katie Pruitt earlier and that Constellation Prize is definitely one of my my favorite tracks on the the record and just I just appreciate like some of the space that was created I guess on the record and maybe that was also just like the different feel in production but like especially in between the lines and the chorus on that one it just seems like there's these these moments to to kind of breathe and like take in what you're expressing i guess and i don't know do you feel like you you reached some new level of vulnerability for yourself with this record i mean yeah that's that's it's possible yeah i think that's interesting that you say there's space on it because I, I stopped writing bridges. <laughs> I stopped writing as many bridges because I just felt like the songs didn't really need them. Like a lot of these songs are either like three verses and a refrain or even three verses and three choruses. And there just wasn't really much more to say in a bridge. So I just stopped writing bridges and, and just kind of had more of these instrumental sections. And I also, I think it comes from the music that I've been listening to too, which is, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like songwriter songwriters who I love, but I wouldn't necessarily want to put their records on while I was making dinner. You know yeah. what I mean? Whereas, you know, I've been listening to a lot of like Kurt Vile records just because like there's a vibe to them yeah. just from track one all the way to the end. Like you can put that record on and there's not going to be any tracks that you want to skip because like, it's not getting too quiet and it's not getting too loud. It's just kind of this steady vibe throughout the whole the steady like sonic sonic vibe through the whole thing that i just want to put on uh when i'm just like hanging out right and so i think i'm probably doing a terrible job explaining that but i, th- I think no, just I, I feel you. going into <laughs> going into like this the sonic the sonics of this record like we um when we started recording consolation prize uh, in the studio, I think the band all thought like, well, this is going to be the ballad. And maybe we're thinking either no drums for this or just like a small, like steady kick drum for this, but like no snare. And uh, normally I would have just said, yeah, this is the ballad. Let's keep it quiet. But for that song, I was like, you know what? Can we just, can we just try like a, a steady groove through this, <laughs> this yeah. whole song? And um, that's kind of what we did with every song. Like every song that we thought was a ballad, we just said, you know what, let's try it with the band. Let's just see how see how it sounds. And that's kind of the, you know, closer to what music I would listen to is, is just sort of this, uh, somebody somebody described it as a, as psalm ambulistic, which is like a, a sleepwalking kind of vibe, which which is kind of what I'm into. Yeah, man, I think that there's like something great about, you know, a record that you can just throw on in the background and it's just kind of there and uh, can be the the record you wake up and have your coffee to or it can be like the nightcap, but also then you can listen to it in headphones and really kind of like 
digest what's happening and dive into the lyrics and like i just think your your turns of phrases on this record are uh are very cool and kind of just like leave me hanging on to certain thoughts or certain words like consistently throughout each like song on the record Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I, I appreciate that a lot. I think what I, you know, what I like about this record is I feel like when I've been talking about it in in interviews, it sounds like super fucking dark, and it's because the lyrics are really dark. But I'm kind of happy that sonically, it's not. I wouldn't say that it's a dark record. Yeah. You know, like if you if you really dig into the lyrics, like it's definitely dark there. But sonically, I, I like that. You know, it's not it's not a total bummer to put on. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think. I think. I mean, I think that's we'll like see. what's great about those records. And you like talked about Phoebe earlier, and like that's what's great about her records. It's like, yeah, this is like yeah. a bummer, but it also has a vibe to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. That's exactly what I'm going for. <laughs> <laughs> bummer. A bummer with vibes. <laughs> I know you. You spoke of this record being like a hard reset for you. Did you? Like, what did you mean by that? Did you mean that, like, obviously, sonically, it's a it's a different sound that's ever come out. But like, did you mean the content of the of the lyrics as well? And yeah, I think a little bit of both. Just a, a reset in terms of style and a reset just in terms of this is definitely um, a more the songs came from a more personal place. I would always kind of laugh at songwriters who said that songwriting was cathartic for them because I never felt that way. I always just, it was just something that I enjoyed doing. Like I never wrote when I was sad. I always wrote when I was in a good mood. Yeah. And a lot of it was just me kind of observing other people or other things in life and not, not as much attaching my own, uh, my own feelings or, or emotions to them. Um, whereas this record was a complete opposite. Like now I, this, it totally was cathartic to write this record. Um, it totally came from a personal place. And that's the first time that that's ever happened for me. And honestly, it was just, even though the, the songs were coming from a dark place, the process of it was just a lot more enjoyable for me, I think, because I was just kind of letting go a little bit and not trying to make these songs something they're not, not, not trying to overwrite them, like you were saying, like not trying to be too tricky with them and just kind of, allowing them to be what they wanted to be. And I know you you talked about just like the the timeline of these songs coming together. So was the big one the first track that you wrote for the record? It was, yeah. Yeah, so um, I actually wrote that one right before uh, the pandemic's 2020. And obviously the first two songs within that record are very much focused on the end of the world, like the universal end of the world, which I think just everybody everybody's headspace was there at that point and uh yeah so it's pretty much chronological order from from there well the sun is shining but the tv's on and you're in there somewhere with the blinds all drawn and i know i'll find you in your unmade bed the news channels get inside your head and the world is burning while the earth is just posing, looking out for us, when the ice is melting, when the damage is done, I'll be holding you.
also like the the song that follows that was the second song that you wrote for the record and you kind of just like kept building upon that or did you have to like shift things around at all when it came to sequencing yeah i didn't really realize about that sequencing until everything was done until the record was finished and i was deciding track listing and and then i just ordered them how i thought they should be ordered and i realized like oh man this is actually kind of just the timeline and how I wrote them. So I, I wasn't aware of that while I was writing them. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't thinking like, all right, now I'm going to write a track three. But so it, that just kind of worked out. And that kind of, to me, like I didn't even realize what, you know, like how to sum up this whole record until it was all done and I had put it in order and I kind of went, oh, okay, this is this is kind of the timeline of what I was going through for over the past two years. And every song is kind of a, a, a development to like what I was personally going through all the way up to the, to the last song, which is kind of, uh, to me, like to me, the whole record in general is just about kind of trying to find this place of, of, of calm and peace and just looking, looking to better myself and, and appreciate, um, appreciate, you know, what I've got going on in my life and just, and just, uh, just kind of like, find a moment to be if that if that makes any sense yeah for sure man i think that's uh that's communicated in the tunes and like what i kind of get out of the listening experience even though like we were talking you know some of the lyrics can be a bummer but i kind of feel like i'm just like working my shit out along with you like while i'm listening <laughs> to it in a like in a in a positive way and uh i don't know did there, yeah. there's there's obviously that it you know, the excitement of putting out a new record, which I'm assuming that you've had most of the time when you're putting out new music, but did you feel differently putting this one out just because it was expressing something so different for you? And there was like that, that deeper level of catharsis with writing these tunes? A little bit. Yeah. It was a little bittersweet to have it actually be released which it just came out a couple weeks ago so yeah it's still a little bit weird to just just because i had these songs just to myself for so long um yeah to have them out is a little weird but it seems like people are connecting with them and like you said like everyone's really going through some shit right now so um you know i i know a lot of the lyrics are dark but i think i think a lot of people can relate to them and and that's been the coolest part is just um seeing which songs people are connecting to and and how they and I think what's amazing about releasing a record is just seeing how people kind of relate their own their their own emotions to the song, and the song becomes a completely different thing. And that's why I almost like whenever I go through the release process and I have to, you know, I have to do a track by track analysis of each song. Like I almost don't want to do it because I feel like people bring their own things to the table. So I don't really want to explain what the song is about because I want them to connect with it in their own way. And they still do even when I do explain the song, but part of me just wants to like not say anything about it and just have them come to their own conclusions. Yeah, for sure. I think that I always like maybe enjoy listening at least the first few times without any of that sort of input so I can't attach my own meanings to things, but it's always very interesting when uh, someone like yourself or another songwriter does choose to kind of like expose what things were about because you can see how far off maybe your ideas were about the tune, but it right. can still yeah. like hold such mean, like so much meaning for like what you thought it was. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's always funny for me is is sonically too, um, seeing what people have to say about it because this record, like, uh, I have this song called Honest Light, which to me is like the most kind of up-tempo indie rocker yeah. track that I've ever made. And then I released that as a single and people just went like, it's so nice and beautiful. And I went, wait, what do you mean? <laughs> this is like my... This is my rocker, man. This was gritty, man. It's just man. so funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just hilarious, like how I always think, like, oh man, here's here comes the here comes the up tempo one, and people are like, oh, that's really nice sounding. Yeah, grocery store is uh, one of my favorites off the record, and I think that oh, that thanks, one man. that one to me is like is a great display to me of just like your ability to paint a picture with lyrics and and really create visuals for what you're communicating and, and like speaking to like taking the songwriting and the lyrics to the next level i thought that was like a very cool representation of that oh cool thanks man that that song almost didn't make the record um just because it was like st stylistically a little bit different from the others um but once it was mixed i i i really loved it and um and it was another one that every time you go into the studio, you always, I feel like you squeeze out a few really good ones right before. And that with good things, I wrote those two just really quickly right before going into the studio. And those are always some of my favorite songs because you do, you have kind of turned the editor off at that point. You're just looking to see like what you can squeeze in before going into the studio. So those two songs, it's just like, those. I spent zero time on those lyrics. They just kind of came out and um, they were just kind of a train of thought. Whereas other songs I will spend forever tweaking the lyrics to. But yeah, that one was one that just, just kind of came out. I don't really cry, this bottle inside me don't think about it. And two times a year, the irrelevant fear comes screaming out. Did you have a producer on this one, or was this kind of the first time you, you didn't really have a producer in the room with you? No, I worked with Jim Bryson on this one, so... Um this is my third time working with Jim. So we did Huntsville together, we did Quiet Talkers, and then this one. I think Jim and I just really know each other by now. It's our third record together. And he knew, I think, sonically what I wanted to achieve. And Jim comes from a very different music background. Like he came up in punk bands. And um, we have the same taste in music. We just come into it from a very different place. So yeah. he's kind of the perfect guy to, to try to take away some of the polish mm. uh from my sound yeah. and he's he's always you know kind of the opposite of the coin where he's bringing like the the punk background to it not that there's like any punk on this record but just sonically he knows how to how to pull it away from from being too uh too lush sounding but um but yeah this i mean we did a lot of this remotely uh, i i went to his studio a couple times in between lockdowns here in Ontario. His studio's in uh, just outside of Ottawa. But most of it was, uh, I did the vocals from home. I did a lot of guitar stuff from home. And then Jim and I just worked remotely over over Zoom for, for a lot of the overdubs and a lot of the finishing touches. Yeah, so will he throw down like instrumentation on, on the record 
or is it, is it mostly yeah, he you? Yeah, plays, he plays a lot of instruments on the record. So okay. he does a lot of guitars. He does all the keyboards, all the synths, uh, a lot of the percussion. So what I like about working with Jim is he's uh, he's an amazing songwriter in his own right. And so he, you know, I, I sort of view these records as like they're also Jim Bryson records in a way because hit by him playing on it, uh, he just adds a lot of his own kind of sonic sound to it, which I personally love as a as a listener. So that's just like an, an extra bonus of working with him as a producer is you you get his vibe to go along with it. Yeah. And are you still primarily just like writing all your initial ideas on guitar at this point? Yeah, pretty much. I've I mean I've I've tried writing on keyboard a little bit. I've got a like a crappy keyboard in, in my office here, but um yeah, I haven't really come up with much yet, mostly because I'm terrible at it. But I've been trying to been trying to write on different instruments, but it it mostly comes from guitar these days. But a lot of it, I'm writing a lot on electric guitar these days. Uh, um, I used to write primarily only on acoustic, but I find that I'm writing a lot of new stuff on electric. Yeah, do you feel like that changes up your vocal delivery when you're writing on the electric? A little bit. I think you can at least figure out what the vibe of the song might be when you're playing it on electric because you can change the sound of it. Um, whereas acoustic, I, I never really know what it's going to be until yeah. we start putting stuff on it. Whereas I think writing on electric, I have a bit more of a vision of what, what it's going to sound like. And, um, and I've just, I've been experimenting with all these different tunings and stuff too. So I, I've just, it's kind of fun to like go back and forth between different guitars and different tunings. And a lot of this record was written in, in a few, uh, a few of these weird low drop tunings. Um, so now I'm trying to figure out how to play them live <laughs> without spending the whole time tuning. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you also find that like not writing everything on the acoustic helps you steer away a little bit from the, the folky, maybe like troubadour kind of stuff you were speaking to earlier? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like I can play the same way on an electric and it's just a, a completely different vibe. And like I said, doing some of the different tunings, you know, you, sometimes you just get tired of a G chord, right? <laughs> you just get tired of the sound of the G chord. And sometimes you just got to find a different way to play a G in a different tuning that will kind of perk your ears up and not just be the same same thing that you start with every single time. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you just kind of got to trick your brain sometimes into hearing, hearing new things, hearing the same chord in a different tuning. For sure, man. Well, I love this record, man. Cerulean. It's, uh, yeah, I know it's only been out a couple of weeks, but I've been listening to it quite a bit. And it's like one of those things where if I do put it on, I will almost always listen to it all the way through or if not, like let oh, it play thanks, again man. when it's over. I appreciate that, man. That, that means a lot. Yeah. It's, uh, it's still, it's still fresh out in the world. So yeah, that means, means a lot to hear. And I, and I also like a really, and, and it makes like sense, I guess, talking to you about it and maybe wanting to strip away some of that polish that, you know, you feel like naturally kind of comes out, but even the aesthetic of the album cover, I feel like you can feel that there's like something different with this one. It's just like this very like casual <laughs> picture. It's not like some flashy yeah. photo shoot or anything that came out of it. Was that a pretty conscious decision that you wanted to kind of put that out there as the the album art to to set a different tone 
It was, yeah. I had I just kept coming back to that picture. Like I wasn't planning on using it for anything, but I I just knew I liked that picture. I don't know what it was about it. And I started using it as a placeholder just on a SoundCloud link when I was sending around my demos before we went into the studio. And a lot of the guys in the studio just said like, "Dude, I love the album cover." And I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And uh a lot of people just commented on 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 that picture and I, I, I thought that was funny at first and I didn't plan on using it, but like you said, you know, like you can't really emulate that vibe in a photo shoot. Um, yeah. Especially because, especially for me, because photo, I find photo shoots are just like cringeworthy. Um, <laughs> so there's no way I'm going to get like a, you know, just a like relaxed vibe. Right. In it. Right. And uh, I, and I think, you know, I think that picture just sums up a lot of what we were talking about, which was just me kind of letting go a little bit. I feel like it, it shows off my personality, which is like, I feel like on first glance, I look cool. And then the the the, the closer you look, the more uncool I become, <laughs> which I kind of love about Hell it. Hell yeah. Because it's like, you think I'm smoking something, but it's really just, uh, it was so cold in there. It's just my breath. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it looks like I'm holding a cigar or something and it's just like a baby bell. <laughs> so, I just kind of love that it kind of sums me up, which is like, you know. I'm not that cool. <laughs> well, I uh, I think it is very cool, Ken, and uh, I appreciate <laughs> Thanks, you. Uh, I appreciate you giving me some of your time. It's been great to get to know you a little bit and get to know where your tunes are coming from, and just to yeah, like to see how the the catalog has developed to this Cerulean record. Man, makes me very excited for uh, what's to come after this one, and I will definitely put all of the links in the episode notes so people can uh keep up with you i know you're uh you're out and about on tour there's some tour dates coming up and uh so i'll make sure that people can tap into those dates as well i want to play the episode out with the the title track for the record which is cerulean and the uh the closing track on the album that's right yeah and yeah. uh yeah we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show, which is, it's a program. So if we could get the Ken Yates, it's a program. It means absolutely nothing. It's just the way that my grandfather says the news program. He always says program. So it's just a, a goofy way to, to kind of end the show. And you can you can deliver it however you want, Ken. You got it, man. I'm going to I'm going to deliver it in the most Canadian way I know how, which is it's a program, eh? <laughs> that was amazing. That's Ken Yates. He nailed it. And uh, you can check out that Cerulean record. You can get yourself a vinyl copy. All those links to keep up with Ken will be in those episode notes. And we're going to play it out with Cerulean off the Cerulean album. That's the Jelly Jams. And we will catch you on the flip side. Portland. Canada, wherever you are listening from.
Just want to give a big shout out to Distro Kid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to Distro Kid for their longtime support of this thing. Make sure you go into the episode notes and find that Distro Kid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you. So make sure you take advantage of that. You can also find the link in my link tree in my Instagram bio. Big thanks to Distro Kid and the other sponsors of the show, Produce Row Cafe and North 45. Stay up, stay tuned. <laughs> 